you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Alright, if you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 9, John chapter 9. We're going to finish the message in this chapter starting in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. This whole chapter is essentially about the man who was blind but has now received his sight. And so we're going to bring that to a conclusion. We're going to land that plane today. So as we begin, as we kind of start this sermon, I have a question and it's rhetorical. What is the difference between disbelief and unbelief? What is the difference between disbelief and unbelief? Disbelief is, by definition, an inability or refusal to accept something that is true or real. Like, no, I, I can't believe this man was born blind. He sees now it's impossible for him to have been healed. Right? There's that disbelief. Then you have unbelief. And unbelief, by definition, is a lack of religious belief or a lack of faith. It is this complete utter rejection of faith, this complete rejection of what you know is true. And so the distinction is needed this morning as we continue the story of the blind man receiving sight. There's this instantaneous, nah, this couldn't have been the the poor man who was blind Surely, this is just a doppelganger. This is somebody who looks like him. And so this instantaneous disbelief is carried unto the religious leaders, the Pharisees that we'll see in the story this morning. And we can suspect that they too will also have an element of disbelief. But where the story turns is when their disbelief is overcome with truth and then explained away in unbelief. So they will ultimately reject the actual truth of what's going on. In other words, the sight of this formerly blind man will come to the point of agreement. Yeah, this man was blind and he now sees. And it'll turn to this point of spiritual aggression, which says, but I don't believe in the one who made him see. And so in a world where everyone is screaming, I follow the science, right? That's kind of the the thing, the catchphrase in the last couple years. It seems reasonable to think that those same exact people would also follow the science of seeing that the Bible is true, that the Bible is reliable, that the Bible is God's Word. That science or that critical method to prove the Bible are outstanding. And we can, as Christians, turn Blue in the face, making arguments, trying to just constantly prove. But there's going to come a point where we have to shift from trying to convince to simply just proclaiming the gospel. The man born blind in this story goes through really that evolution of belief himself. By the time we are done with this chapter, we'll have seen the blind man going from just being physically blind and spiritually blind to physically and spiritually seeing the light of the world, Jesus, and to respond to Him in genuine faith, to respond to Him in worship as the Son of Man. Going from this, I don't know who this guy is, to this is Messiah. And so what we'll see today is a seeing, is seeing in a world of blinded unbelief. What it, mean, what it looks like to be seeing in a world of blinded unbelief. Verse 13, I'm just going to walk through these verses with you today. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. So the man was blind, right? He was a beggar. Jesus and the disciples walk by. The disciples say, hey, who, what is the result for this man's blindness? Is it his parents' sin or what is the reason? And they go into this whole dialogue about why this man was blind. And Jesus told them, this man is not blind because of his parents' sin. He's blind so that God may reveal to us something bigger, grand, His glory. And so they go through this whole conversation and then Jesus bends down 
in the dirt, spits in the dirt, making mud, making clay, puts it on the blind man's eyes, tells him to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash, and he does, he obeys him, and he sees, and Jesus is kind of away from him, not in distance to where the blind man can see Jesus. And so at that point, the neighbors all gather around the blind man like, okay, who are you? Wait, surely, I thought you were the blind man, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're someone who looks like the blind man. Well, maybe you weren't actually blind. All these questions, all this speculation, and the whole time this man who was blind is sitting here going, I can see. <laughs> and so, so then, they bring this man who was formerly blind to their local pastors, if you will, the Pharisees, like, hey, check this out. Give us some running commentary on what has just taken place. And so 14, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened His eyes. Now this is the first time in John's Gospel here in this story, not John's Gospel, but in this chapter, that we know that this healing was done on the Sabbath day. When we saw that in the first 12 verses, it didn't tell us that it was done on the Sabbath day, but now we know So there's this ongoing frustration of the Jewish leaders, and in this case, the Pharisees, that Jesus has violated the Sabbath law because, why? Because He made clay. It wasn't so much that it was the healing, but that He was working the dirt. And He worked with His hands, and then this man was healed. And so this community brings them to their pastors, say, tell us about this, and yet... They're sitting here frustrated. In verse 15, so the Pharisees asked again, how is it that you received your sight? The man has already given his explanation back in verse 11, but he tells his story again to the Pharisees. He said to them, he, that is Jesus, put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Okay, yeah, that squares away with what he told the neighbors in verse 11. There's no change of the story here. He is telling the same exact story over and over again. And so then there's this conversation among the religious leaders here. When the Pharise- some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Pause for that, on that for just a moment. There is zero response Like zero recognition of the Imago Dei standing right in front of them. This man born in the image and likeness of God. There is no recognition of that. There's no rejoicing. There's no celebrating what just happened with this man whom they know was blind for a number of years and now sees. And all they're thinking is, man, Jesus didn't keep the rules. Think about it this way. Husbands, imagine your wife is spending time with your nine-month-old. You have, a, you have a baby, okay? And if you don't have a baby, imagine a baby. A nine-month-old, working with that baby, helping them take their first steps, and your wife's determination pays off, and your nine-month-old takes their first steps in your living room one Saturday afternoon, and your spouse, uh, you and your spouse are drawing attention to this. Your wife is saying, look at what he's doing. Isn't this amazing? And you look at your wife and you go, why did you te- teach him to walk today? Today's Saturday. It's the day we're supposed to rest. The day we're supposed to lay down. We're supposed to watch football, not do laundry, not do anything. And besides, he's got little nine-month-old shoes on and you know the rules. We don't wear shoes in the house. Imagine that sort of response in that moment. If you've ever done that, the pastors of this church will not have your back. You have to face your wife on your own. But that's just a ludicrous response, right? A ludicrous response. And so that's sort of what the Pharisees are saying. They're completely sidelining the reality that this man has been born blind and now sees, and they're going, man, he breaks the rules, this Jesus. But not all of them agreed. Others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? This man that they're talking about is Jesus. They were accusing this man of being born into sin, this blind man. But now the direction or the focus of the conversation is less on this man and now back onto Christ, onto Jesus, 
saying that he's a sinner. And why is he a sinner? Because he broke the Sabbath, apparently. So their countering thought would be, well, God wouldn't contradict himself by performing a miracle at the expense of the Sabbath, would he? And again, the Jews are missing. The Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. Completely misunderstanding a theology of the Sabbath. And so there was division among them. So here this man is now seeing, and among the religious leaders, a theological debate ensues as to what is going on. So verse 17, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him, that is Jesus, since he has opened your eyes? We can't seem to figure out who this guy is. Some say he's a sinner. Some say he's a man of God. We don't agree. So let's try to figure this out. And so the blind man says, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And now you begin to see already, if you were to jump back to verse 11, how this man's answer of who Jesus is has evolved. It has evolved from this man called Jesus to now, well, maybe he's a prophet. And the idea of prophet here is not so much in the sense as capital P prophet, like messianic prophet, but more so a prophet, a man of God, a person who has come to deliver the word of God and to do the work of God. And so he's not exactly wrong, right? But he's not exactly right. But nonetheless, he is doing far better than the Pharisees at this point. And so this man, even this blind man who now sees, is less concerned about the issues of the Sabbath, or as D.A. Carson says, the niceties of the Sabbath, and he is still marveling in the reality of what God has done for him. What do you say about Jesus? Or what do you call him? Or who do you say that he is ever since he has opened your eyes? When you discuss and you relay who Jesus is, what are your words? What do you say? Some of you in this room may be new to the faith. Some of you have never been in a church where you've been discipled. Some of you are reading the Bible for the very first time. And so what I want to say to you is, kind of like this man, a brand new believer, if you will, you have permission to fumble. You have permission to get things a little bit wrong. right? You have permission to call Jesus a lowercase p prophet, but not to stay there. We want to correct you. We want to help you, disciple you, grow you, help you understand. But what I'm trying to get at is this, that you don't need to come in here feeling intimidated like you have to know God to the highest level and that you have to read three books a week and that you have to know theology in and out like your life depends on it. You can know who Jesus is in the most simplest of fashion and ways, and it's okay. This is the place where you can wrestle with and learn who your God is. But I'll let you know, the world will do what they can, even in your infancy as a disciple. Maybe you're new in the faith, or you're just an infant in the faith, and the world will do what they can to discredit you or cause you to disbelieve. You'll be tempted then to defend yourself, to defend your story, what it is you know in a way that ultimately causes you to doubt in a form of unrighteous anger. Don't take the bait. Don't feel like you have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord can defend Himself. Just turn to Him Turn to Christ, even in the simplest of faith, even in the simplest of terms, just say, Jesus, I'm going to Jesus. Remain steady in what it is you do know about him and trust he will continue to make himself known to you. You will continue to grow. You will continue to understand. You will continue to grow in holiness and your knowledge it will happen. It will take time. But in the meantime, the world will do whatever they can to discourage you and keep you from believing that you are believing rightly. So the Jews in verse 18 did not believe that he had been blind. 
and had received his sight. This is where we're going now. Well, we can't agree on who Jesus is, so therefore, let's just say, this guy couldn't have possibly been born blind and received his sight. And so, that is until they had the right kind of witnesses. And so that isn't until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? And how then does he see? So you have these three questions. Is this your son? Was he blind? And how is it that he sees? And his parents, and we don't have any other really context here. Again, we have no names. We don't have a name for the man born blind. We don't have a name for mom. We don't have a name for dad. And so they respond. They answer all three questions, and the first two are positive, and the third one is not so positive. Yes, we know that this is our son. And second, yes, and we know that he was born blind. These are no-brainer answers to these questions. They verify their son's blindness. So this is what it takes for the Pharisees to believe that this man was born blind. But then, these parents, they avoid the how question because of fear of man. But how he sees, in verse 21, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, He will speak for himself. Now, it would seem logical, maybe. Maybe the parents are just seeing this for the first time. This is an event that just kind of happened rather quickly, and the parents are now being ushered in. And so you might think, okay, well, maybe they just don't actually know, and they're wanting to now understand alongside the Pharisees. But that's not what takes place, because John shows us, really, they're playing dumb to what all has happened, avoiding all the pressure, all the tension, all the aggression towards them. And so John in his Gospel shows us that they knew. Verse 22, in these parentheses here, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. This tells us that the parents were aware of who Jesus was and what Jesus has done for their son. And it also shows us that they had succumbed to the fear of man. And instead of bravely, courageously answering the question of the Pharisees, they give in to fear and they punt responsibility and they put all the pressure on their son. Great parents, huh? (laughs) You would think, man, this is your son. When your son was born, you were excited to have your son. You were thrilled to have your son. And then you realized your son was blind. And can you imagine years or decades of just grief and sorrow of constantly having to care for your son, praying for your son, begging maybe that your son would receive sight. And now you're seeing your son on the daily begging, begging for money because he cannot work like every other son who has his sight. And so now your son receives sights after several years, many years, and your only response is, I care more about my social standing than I do standing with my son in this truth. We need to have integrity and courage to bear witness to Christ. There's a great line I heard R.C. Sproul say, It is easy to note the unbelief of the Pharisees as they did not believe the man was born blind, but what about the unbelief of the parents? Again, go back to the definition. Disbelief would be, whoa, I cannot understand what I'm seeing before me. This is hard to believe. But the parents have transitioned into the realm of unbelief. They are not directly opposing Jesus, but playing the game just enough to where they can slip out of view from the conversation. And so what we see is that unbelief not only comes aggressively and outwardly and publicly, but also it expresses itself very passively. Very passively. Do you have a tendency to worm your way out of bearing witness to Jesus because you fear man? 
well, you know, the company policy is that we can't talk about Jesus, so I, I don't really want to go down that route. And, well, you know, we, we live in a very churched area, and everybody's so used to all the bad things that churches have done around here, so to kind of avoid being grouped in with those people, I'm going to just kind of go about talking about my faith in a different way. Not mention Jesus, not mention Gospel, not mention sin, because I don't want to seem like one of those guys. Right? There's this passivity that comes that's ultimately rooted in some sort of fear. And so I want to say, do not be like the parents in this story who feared man over fearing God. To them, God was little, man was big. They wanted acceptance in the world. They didn't want rejection. They wanted to be liked, not hated. But we all know, to gain the world is to lose Jesus. To lose your life. So what what is it that you want to gain? What is it that you want more than anything? Do you want the world? Or do you want Jesus? The world will press in on your beliefs. They'll press in on your life. And when they do, you must be ready and willing to count the cost. This son was ready and willing. These parents were not. And the idea of being kicked out of the synagogue or cast out of the synagogue is this, basically it's like church discipline. You're kicked out of that local synagogue. Unable to come there and worship. Everybody in this area is Jewish. So everybody's going to church, if you will, on Saturday, but you're the only one who isn't. And not only that, you've just become this social outcast. And so there's this threat, and that's what the parents are feeling. I don't want to be cast out. I don't want to be the one that everybody's looking at when we walk down the road going, oh, there they are. But they want to be accepted They don't want to lose that sort of social acceptance, those relationships, those friendships that they've most likely built for a a number of years. And so that may be a cost for some of you. That you may be threatened with being cast out, threatened with being a social reject, threatened with being made fun of or belittled on social media or whatever it is. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This is not some, oh, give praise to God for what he has done, right? That would be a faithful statement. But no, it's, hey, look, it's time to tell the truth before God, before all people. Tell us. Tell us about this man, that he is a sinner. Admit it. And so the man who was born blind answered in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was, born, that I was blind, now I see. Kids, I was thinking as you're drawing or writing or whatever, that maybe if you're able to, Write those words down in that verse, verse 25. The words, I was blind, now I see. Just those six words. I was blind, now I see. You can write them really nice in the middle of your page and then just color the page. And I don't want you to give this to me when you're done. You guys have been giving me your artwork. I'm thankful for that. But I want you to take this home and talk with your parents. And I want you to ask them, what does it mean that he was blind and now he sees? And then every time you see that picture, you're reminded of what Jesus has done. I was blind, now I see. And so what is remarkable is that it takes a blind man to state the obvious. Or a man who was blind to state the obvious. Everyone is trying to force a narrative here. They don't care about the truth. They care about the spinning of this story and how it is laid out. They want something that fits their opinions. But this man is saying, hey guys, look, I I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. All I know is I was blind and now I see what more could I possibly 
say? What more do you need from me? And understand, this is still just testimony. It is not yet gospel proclamation. He's just testifying. This is what God did to me. This is the miracle. This is the works of what has taken place. But soon it'll turn into proclamation. And they said to him in verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? In 27, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? The man may have been born blind, but he's not stupid. He's catching on to what is happening and he begins to press in to the intimidation and the insecurities of the Pharisees. They're trying to intimidate the man. They're trying to get him to coerce him, to force him to fit into their narrative. But he's also catching the reality of their insecurities. No matter what they say, this man cannot deny the truth of what has taken place. And so instead of taking the bait, the man really responds sarcastically by saying, do you also want to be one of his disciples? Is that what you want to be? Are you asking me again because you really just want to follow Jesus? And they reviled him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. It's kind of like that big child game of I know you are, but what am I? That's their response. They're so frustrated. You see the insecurities rise up. How dare you speak back to us? And they made it abundantly clear. We're disciples of Moses. And this has been the ongoing debate, the ongoing argument. And Jesus has already made clear in the Gospel of John already that Moses spoke of Him. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the mediator. He is the fulfillment of everything that was spoken of old. Moses was pointing to Jesus. And if you were a disciple of His, you would know Me as well. And so the man answered. And this answer, you kind of have to ask yourself this question. Will this man ultimately give in to the fear of the Jews like his parents? Or will he stand up? And it becomes abundantly clear in the following verses. He's able not only to speak for himself, but to legally speak for himself. And that's why his parents say he is of age. Ask him. He can testify. He is a credible witness. He's an adult. He can say these words, legally binding words, if you will, and verify what he's doing. Let him speak for himself. So this man speaks, even though the threats that are coming his way, and he says, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Man. Just on the spot, on the fly, this man rips into them a beautiful sermon, if you will. Though he was blind, he was a good listener. He was a very good listener. Daily, weekly, hearing the words of Scripture taught in the synagogue, hearing the word read, spoke about in the city. When you're blind, the sense of hearing is intensified and sharpened. This man knew he was never going to see again. These things are brought into memory. And so he is absorbing that information. He retains that information by listening and holding it to memory. And so he understands what the Old Testament is. He understands the Scripture. He understands who Moses is. He's likely aware of these things. And so he picks up on this. Well, is Jesus a sinner or no? And while the man didn't previously know, right? He said, well, whether or not Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. But what I do know is I was blind, but now I see. This man begins to shift his response a little bit more theologically. 
picking up on this intimidation and manipulation of the Pharisees. And now, instead of speaking vaguely, he presses into his theology and takes them to task. So he's saying, look, nobody in the history of the Bible was able to ever do this. God would not allow a sinner in this sort of way to perform this sort of miracle. So the logic should flow for the Pharisees then. If a man who is born blind or who is blind is the result of sin, then it should logically flow. A man who receives sight is the result of God's righteousness. That's what they were thinking this whole time. You were born into utter sin and you would teach us. Their egos are in the way. So what do they do to this man? They cast him out. This is the big, how dare you? How dare you come and challenge us? We are the pastors. We are the theologians. We are the Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogue. And so instead of having a a conversation, a good, healthy conversation, they resort to shame-throwing and insults. That's what they do. This further shows the insecurities flaring up in these Pharisees. Instead of actually working out the Scriptures, they just begin to insult Him. And so just as they assured as they were that Jesus was a sinner, so they claimed the same for this man. I mean, think about it. This guy, I don't know how long it's been, maybe minutes or just hour or hours since his sight has been given to him, and now he's just getting beat up. Beat up. Nothing to really celebrate. And granted, there's nothing here, but it's like, I wonder if at some point he's like, man, maybe I wish I just never got my sight. (laughs) Things would be a whole lot easier. Consider the fallen logic again. A man born in sin and blind could only possibly have been healed and given sight by another. A fellow sinner who seemingly has power that has never been seen before. That's the fallen logic. That's what the Pharisees are saying. That Jesus is a sinner. If He's the one who gave you your sight, then one sinner gave another sinner their sight. And this is where you see the fallen logic will go to, well, He must must have a demon in Him. You see that? And so this man was then kicked out of the synagogue. The very fear that overcame his parents of being socially rejected, being kicked out of the synagogue, now their son has been kicked out. This idea of being kicked out of the synagogue, if you were to, when Jesus teaches in in Matthew's Gospel, He talks about if an enemy strikes you on the cheek to turn and give them the other cheek, the imagery there is this picture of being cast out. Right When you're being cast out of the synagogue or in the city as a whole, being rejected openly and publicly, you are slapped across the face in front of everyone. And so Jesus says, give them the other cheek also. You can be rejected by the world, but you are accepted by me. And so this imagery here, it is okay to be rejected by the world. It hurts, it stings, it's painful, But I'm not done with you yet. So church, as your courage increases, you will notice the intensity of unbelief as it reacts against you. When the world sees that you will not budge from the foundation of truth, the only reaction it can really give is to insult you, to call you names, to challenge your your credentials, your education, your status, your past sins, your reputation, anything it can do, just grabbing at anything to try to get under your skin. And to add insult to injury, they push you out and keep you out. You can see an example of this hostility with cancel culture. The whole message. Get on board with what we believe to be right and true or we will cancel you. We will cancel your shows, your livelihood. We will make everything miserable for you. This does carry into the Christian context as well. 
If we don't get on board with the sexual revolution, if we don't get on board with other health and social agendas, then we are to be canceled. We are to be shut out, rejected. Church, it's okay to be cast out. Sometimes we act like what's happening in the world is a real big shock or surprise. This has been happening from the beginning. Like we're really surprised when sinners do things like sin. When corrupt governments do things like corrupt governing. Right? We have to stop being shocked by this and so reactive and just so angry and white-knuckling. I'm not saying we don't stand firm, but man, we don't have to lose our minds over it. This is what sinners do. Jesus didn't come down into a world full of people who are like, man, I just can't wait for Jesus to get here. He came down to a world of people who hate Him, who despised Him, rejected Him, wanted We all wanted our own kingdom. We all wanted our own ways. We never wanted Him. We didn't invite Him to come down. So we cannot be surprised when the world does this. It's okay to be rejected by the world. It's okay to be cast out. Do not succumb to the fear of man. Fear God by all means. It hurts. Let's just be honest. It does hurt. But our comfort and our community is not found in the popularity of the world, but in Christ alone. When the world rejects us, remember, it rejected God first. But don't be dismayed, because Jesus will find you. 35. Jesus heard that they had cast Him out, and having found Him, He said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? For a moment, think about this. Jesus heard, and then Jesus found. He heard what happened to this man, and then he found him. The man had never met Jesus face to face with sight. After he was given his sight, he never got to shake his hand. He never got to give him a hug. He couldn't even pick him out of a crowd in any way. He wasn't coached ahead of time by Jesus. You're going to be rejected, but just hold tight. None of that. But for some reason, by faith or belief, he held on to the truth. He didn't budge. He responded to a very forceful opposition by standing on truth and not expecting anything in return. He didn't know Jesus was going to hear about him. He didn't know Jesus was going to come back to him. So there's something that happens to this man that theologically aligns with what he already believes. The man said, the Pharisee, the man told the Pharisees, God does not listen to sinners. And while he was speaking of Jesus, little did he realize that would be true for him as well. This man would become a child of God and would hear God, right? We'll get to that in chapter 10. The the sheep know the shepherd's voice. They hear Him calling and they respond to Him. And even in the moment, though this man didn't know what God would do, he remained faithful. The man was not a sinner in the sense that the Pharisees were describing him to be a sinner. That he was blind because of his parents' sin. He was a sinner because he has sinned against God, no doubt. But not in the way that the Pharisees describe. And this would be a sinner that God would make righteous. So up to this point, the man hasn't seen him, doesn't know him. He would probably recognize his voice, but maybe he's been so distracted with so many things, he's forgotten the sound of his voice. And so Jesus comes up to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Can you imagine? There's this emotional cyclone probably happening inside of this man's soul. He was rejected before. And now he's rejected again. My parents threw me under the bus. Nobody's by my side. I can see, which is great, but I have no one to celebrate it with. Nobody's happy for me. I believe I'm standing on truth. And then, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
And Jesus uses this title, I think, because he believes, because he wants the man before him to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the man who has come down to creation. He called him the prophet, lowercase p, before, and now Jesus is amping it up a little bit more. The Son of Man. Son of Man takes me back to Daniel chapter 7, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man that Jesus is presenting before this man. And I believe this man is understanding it in this way. And so he answers, And who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him? It doesn't take physical eyesight to believe in the Son of Man. He's still standing before Jesus and doesn't realize Jesus is the Son of Man. So his faith is still active. It's still at work. There's a belief in the man that goes... It transitions really from this religious faith to a faith grounded in truth and in the Son of Man. He's no longer just hanging on the testimony of what happened. Hey, this is the story of my life. But now, he's clinging on to the only thing he could possibly have. The only hope that he could possibly have that the Son of Man would reach down to him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The proclamation of the gospel. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Going from testimony to proclamation. I was born blind. I now see the testimony. And now the proclamation. You are Lord. I believe. And I worship you. His faith is now sight, if you will. The man believed in Jesus and saw Jesus before he could actually see Jesus. And then when he saw Jesus, when Jesus came to him and spoke to him, he saw him more clearly. He understood now. And he called him Lord, believed in him, and worshipped. This word Lord is not just this rabbi or sir, but no, he's responding to Jesus as this supernatural master of all Things, Lord of the cosmos, Lord of the universe, the Son of Man who has dominion over all things, who has ascended back to the Ancient of Days. And he believes in Him. This is believing in faith. Faith in Jesus. Not on Jesus, but in Jesus. That He is Lord of all. And what does He do? He worships Him. In this word, is the word that we get prostrate. This saying is idiomatic, meaning literally to incline the face to the ground. This man is throwing himself to the ground, to the dirt, the very substance that was used to make him gain sight. He throws himself down before Jesus, claiming, you are master, you are Lord of all. You are the Son of Man, and I believe you. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The blind now see, and the seeing are now blind. The man who couldn't see, he sees now. And those who can see, they are blind. There's echoes of Isaiah chapter 6 in this statement. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a little bit of a mystery here. It seems a paradox to our thinking. 
But there's a reality that Jesus comes in not to condemn the world, but He comes in to save sinners. But the reality is that some will be saved, some will not, and there is going to be judgment that comes as a result. And those who reject the light of the world will receive judgment. And to paint this picture even further, kind of what we're seeing here, Romans chapter 10 really kind of illustrates this picture where the Jews were given over to disobedience. And for what reason? So that the Gentiles would know Jesus. And then the Gentiles were used to make the Jews jealous so that they might come to know Jesus. And so God in His wisdom uses sight and blindness to reveal His gospel in expected yet unexpected ways. The Jews were expecting and yet they were blind to Jesus and unexpectedly found themselves rejecting the one that they were expecting. So this mystery is profound. The way that God would work to bring His Gospel out for the light to shine, for the Word to be known, But we don't have to wait until the book of Romans to see that that is true. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. He tells the Pharisees, if you were blind like this man was blind, you would have no guilt because you just simply did not know. But now that you know and you see who I am and you understand who I am, there is accountability even more for rejecting me. You are now guilty and will remain guilty unless you believe. There is a very real hurt, pain, and loneliness that comes when you choose Jesus and truth over acceptance by the world. But there is comfort and acceptance when you are in Christ. When Jesus finds you and reveals to you who He is, what should then be your appropriate response? We call Him Lord. We respond to Jesus as the Son of Man. The one who has been given all dominion and authority, mastery over all things. To Him we listen and to Him we obey. This is why we don't have to freak out so hard when the world is being turned upside down. All the craziness that is going out there. Jesus has not left His throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. We can call Him Lord. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear anything at all. But we can stand firmly and with confidence. He is our Lord. And we are to put our faith in Him. Believing that He's going to fulfill what it is that He says He's going to do. And that He will return. That He is the light of the world. And that we have the light. And we are now able to see. We were blind, but now we see. And the world is still blind. And unless the Lord opens their eyes, they're going to continue to act out of darkness. But it is our responsibility to respond to Him as Lord and to believe in Him and what He does and to go out and to proclaim the good news hoping that the blind would receive their sight. It is an ungodly thing for Christians to sit there and make fun of President Joe Biden by saying, let's go Brandon. We should be the first ones praying for Joe Biden for his eyes to be opened to the light of the gospel. To be sitting here flippantly saying and throwing the president the bird is not a response, a godly gospel-centered response. We should be ashamed of ourselves for that if we do it. We need to pray for the world. Pray for the governing authorities. Pray for those who have authority that is overreaching and overstepping their boundaries. And pray that God would save their souls. Because why? They are made in the image and the likeness of God just like you. And before Christ saved you, you were just as bad. You were just as evil. You were just as wicked. 
So we need to call our brothers and sisters to repentance. You are able to see. So don't be foolish with your sight. Instead, worship. Worship Jesus. That posture of always putting your face to the ground. The Pharisees stood tall with egos, their chest puffed out. Yeah, I can go toe-to-toe with this Jesus. But the blind man says, no, I'm throwing myself to the ground and worshiping Him. That's exactly what we must do. These words of the man are a proclamation of the Gospel. He doesn't just go about talking about him seeing Though he was blind, now he is giving his heart to Jesus. He's giving his life to Jesus. He's giving his words to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so there's a time when our testimonies need to shift from just talking about us all the time and actually talking about Jesus. Pointing to Him. Not being so narcissistic in how we speak but being centered on Christ. So is your conversation and witness of Jesus more of you talking about yourself or more of you talking about the Lord? The world seeing you a changed person doesn't change their hearts. They don't care that Jesus walked out of the tomb. The Sanhedrin didn't care that Jesus was resurrected. They then told their own disciples, go and spread lies that the disciples stole His body. They knew that He was resurrected. They still didn't care. The world doesn't really care what has changed in your life or how miraculous it is. Those things don't change their hearts. Jesus changes their hearts. Tell them about Jesus. Let's do diligence to recognize the difference between those who are having a hard time making sense of what they're seeing, and those who are openly rejecting Jesus, between those who are disbelieving and those who are unbelieving. But in all that blinding unbelief in the world, let's not lose sight of the light of the world, the one who opened the eyes of your heart to see that He is the Son of Man, the Savior of the world.